0: 13, and less considered, ivory inlaying was largely executed in Milan and Venice, mosaics of marble were specialites of Rome and of Florence, and were much applied to the decoration of cabinets, Venice was busy manufacturing carved walnut wood furniture in buffets, cabinets, negro page boys, elaborately painted and gilt, and carved mirror frames, the chief ornaments of which were cupids and foliage, Italian carving has always been free and spirited, the figures have never been wanting in grace. And, though by comparison with the time of the Renaissance there is a great falling off, still, the work executed in Italy during the present century has been of considerable merit as regards ornament, though this has been overdone in construction and joinery. However, the Italian work has been very inferior. Cabinets of great pretension and elaborate ornament, inlaid perhaps with ivory, lapis lazuli, or marbles, are so imperfectly made that one would think ornament, and certainly not durability, had been the object of the producer, in Antwerp, Brussels, Liege, and other Flemish art centres, the school of wood carving, which came in with the Renaissance, appears to have been maintained with more or less excellence, with the increased quality of the carved woodwork manufactured, there was a proportion of ill-finished and over-ornamented work produced, and although, as has been before observed, The manufacture of cheap marquetry in Amsterdam and other Dutch cities was bringing the name of Dutch furniture into ill repute still. So far as the writer's observations have gone, the Flemish woodcarver appears to have been, at the time now under consideration, ahead of his fellow craftsmen in Europe, and when in the ensuing chapter we come to notice some of the representative exhibits in the Great International Competition of 1851. It will be seen that the Antwerp designer and carver was certainly in the foremost rank. In Austria, too, some good cabinet work was being carried out. M. Leisler, of Vienna, having at the time a high reputation, in Paris the house of Ferdinand was making a name which, in subsequent exhibitions, we shall see took a leading place amongst the designers and manufacturers of decorative furniture. England, it has been observed, was suffering from languor in art industry. The excellent designs of the Adams and their school, which obtained early in the century, had been supplanted, and a meaningless Rococo style succeeded the heavy imitations of French pseudo-classic furniture, instead of, as in the earlier and more tasteful periods, when architects had designed woodwork and furniture to accord with the style of their buildings, they appear to have then, as a general rule, abandoned the control of the decoration of interiors and the result was one which when we examine our national furniture of half a century ago has not left us much to be proud of, as an artistic and industrious people, some notice has been taken of the appreciation of this unsatisfactory state of things by the government of the time, and by the press, and, as with a knowledge of our deficiency, came the desire and the energy to bring about its remedy, we shall see that, with the exhibition of 1851, and the intercourse and the desire to improve, which naturally followed that great and successful effort. Our designers and craftsmen profited by the great stimulus which art and industry then received. Illustration, sideboard in carved oak, with silhouette. Designed and manufactured by Mr. Gillow. London, 1851 Exhibition. Illustration, chimney piece and bookcase. In carved walnut wood with colored marbles inlaid and doors of perforated brass. Designed by Mr. T. R. McQuoid, Architect and manufactured by Messers, Holland and Sons, London, 1851 Exhibition, illustration, Grand Theanafort, in ebony inlaid and enriched with gold in relief, designed and manufactured by Messers, Broadwood, London, 1851 Exhibition Chapter Ix, from 1851 to the present time, The Great Exhibition, Exhibitors and Contemporary Cabinet Makers Exhibition of 1862. London, 1867, Paris, and subsequently description of illustrations for Denoise, Wright, and Mansfield the South Kensington Museum revival of marketry comparison of present day with that of a hundred years ago aestheticism traditions trades unionism the arts and crafts exhibition society independence of furniture present fashions writers on design modern furniture in other countries concluding remarks In the previous chapter attention has been called to the success of the National Exhibition in Paris of 1849, in the same year the competition of our manufacturers at Birmingham gave an impetus to industrial art in England, and there was about this time a general forward movement, with a desire for an international exhibition on a grand scale. Articles advocating such a step appeared in newspapers and periodicals of the time, and, after much difficulty, and many delays, A committee for the promotion of this object was formed. This resulted in the appointment of a royal commission, and the Prince Consort, as President of this commission, took the greatest personal interest in every arrangement for this great enterprise. Indeed, there can be no doubt that the success which crowned the work was, in a great measure, due to his taste, patience, and excellent business capacity. It is no part of our task to record all the details of an undertaking which, at the time, was a burning question of the day. But as we cannot but look upon this exhibition of 1851 as one of the landmarks in the history of furniture, it is worthwhile to recall some particulars of its genesis and accomplishment. The idea of the exhibition of 1851 is said to have been originally due to Mr. F. Wishaw, Secretary of the Society of Arts, as early as 1844, but no active steps were taken until 1849, when the Prince Consort, who was president of the society, took the matter up very warmly. His speech at one of the meetings contained the following sentence, Now is the time to prepare for a great exhibition and exhibition worthy of the greatness of this country, not merely national in its scope and benefits, but comprehensive of the whole world, and I offer myself to the public as their leader, if they are willing to assist in the undertaking. Illustration, ladies' escritoire, in white wood, carved with rustic figures. Designed and manufactured by Anne Welly, Bern, Switzerland, 1851 Exhibition, London, to Mr. Afterward Sir Joseph Paxton, then head gardener to the Duke of Devonshire. The general idea of the famous glass and iron building is due. An enterprising firm of contractors, Messrs. Fox and Henderson, were entrusted with the work. A guarantee fund of some L230.000 was raised by public subscriptions, and the Great Exhibition was opened by Her Majesty on the 1st of May, 1851, at a civic banquet in honor of the event. The Prince Consort very aptly described the object of the Great Experiment, the Exhibition of 1851 would afford a true test of the point of development at which the whole of mankind had arrived in this great task and a new starting point from which all nations would be able to direct their further exertions. The number of exhibitors was some 17.000, of whom over 3.000 received prize and council medals, and the official catalogue, compiled by Mr. Scott Russell, the secretary, contains a great many particulars which are instructive reading. When we compare the work of many of the firms of manufacturers, whose exhibits are there in described, With their work of the present day, the Art Journal published a special volume, entitled, The Art Journal Illustrated Catalog, with woodcuts of the more important exhibits, and, by the courtesy of the proprietors, a small selection is reproduced, which will give the reader an idea of the design of furniture, both in England and the chief continental industrial centers at that time. With regard to the exhibits of English firms, of which these illustrations include examples, little requires to be said. In addition to the remarks already made in the preceding chapter of their work previous to the exhibition, one of the illustrations, however, may be further alluded to. Since the changes in form and character of the pianoforte is of some importance in the consideration of the design of furniture, Messrs. Broadwood's Grand Pianoforte Illustrated was a rich example of decorative woodwork in ebony and gold, and may be compared with the illustration on page 172 of the harpsichord which the piano had replaced about 1767, and which an- and since the time of the 1851 exhibition supplies evidence of the increased attention devoted to decorative furniture. In the appendix will be found a short notice of the different phases through which the ever-present piano has passed, from the virginal, or spinet of which an illustration will be found in, a 16th century room, in chapter II down to the latest development of the decoration of the case of the instrument by leading artists of the present day. Mr. Rose, of Messrs. Broadwood, whose firm was established at this present address in 1732, has been good enough to supply the author with the particulars for this notice. Other illustrations, taken from the exhibits of foreign cabinet makers, as well as those of our English manufacturers, have been selected, being fairly representative of the work of the time rather than on account of their own intrinsic excellence. It will be seen from these illustrations that, so far as figure carving and composition are concerned, our foreign rivals, the Italians, Belgians, Austrians, and French, were far ahead of us. In mere construction and excellence of work we have ever been able to hold our own, and, so long as our designers have kept to be in tracks, the effect is satisfactory. It is only when an attempt has been made to soar above the conventional that the effort is not so successful. In looking over the list of exhibits, one finds evidence of the fickleness of fashion. The manufacture of decorative articles of furniture of papier-mache was then very extensive, and there are several specimens of this class of work, both by French and English firms. The drawing room of 1850 to 1860 was apparently incomplete without occasional chairs, a screen with painted panel, a work table, or some small cabinet or casket of this decorative but somewhat flimsy material. Illustration, sideboard, in carved oak, with subjects taken from Sir Walter Scott's, Kenilworth, designed and manufactured by Messrs. Cooks, Warwick 1851 Exhibition, London. Illustration, a state chair, carved and gilt frame, upholstered in ruby silk, embroidered with the royal coat of arms and the Prince of Wales plumes. Designed and manufactured by Anne Jankowski, York. 1851 Exhibition, London. Illustration, Bedstead in Carved Ebony, Renaissance Style. Designed and manufactured by Anne Riel, Antwerp. 1851 Exhibition, London. Illustration, Vienna Fort, in Rosewood, inlaid with Bula work in gold, silver, and copper. Designed and manufactured by Anne Leistler, Vienna. 1851 Exhibition, London. Illustration, bookcase, in carved lime tree, with panels of satin wood, designed and manufactured by Anne Leistler, Vienna, 1851 Exhibition, London, illustration, cabinet, in tulip wood, ornamented with bronze, and inlaid with porcelain, manufactured by Anne Games, St. Petersburg, 1851 Exhibition, the design and execution of mountings of cabinets in metal work particularly of the highly chased and gilt bronzes for the enrichment of de Deluxe, was then, as it still to a great extent remains, the specialite of the Parisian craftsmen, and almost the only English exhibits of such work were those of foreigners who had settled amongst us. Illustration, Casket of Ivory, with Ormolu Mountings, designed and manufactured by Anne Matafat, Paris, 1851 Exhibition, London, Illustration, Table, in the classic style inlaid with ivory manufactured for the king of sardinia by angie capello turin 1851 exhibition london illustration chair in the classic style inlaid with ivory manufactured for the king of sardinia by angie capello turin 1851 exhibition london amongst the latter was munbro a frenchman who established himself in Berners street london and made furniture of an ornamental character in the style of his countrymen, reproducing the older designs of wool and marquetry furniture. The present house of Mellier and CIE are his successors. Mellier, having been in his employ, the late Samson Wertheimer, then in Greek street, Soho, was steadily making a reputation by the excellence of the metal mountings of his own design and workmanship, which he applied to caskets of French style. Furniture of a decorative character and of excellent quality was also made some 40 years ago by Town and Emmanuel, of Bond Street. And many of this firm's old French tables and cabinets were so carefully finished with regard to style and detail that, with the tone acquired by time since their production, it is not always easy to distinguish them from the models from which they were taken. Toms was assistant to Town and Emmanuel and afterwards purchased and carried on the business of Toms and Luscombe, a firm well-known as manufacturers of excellent and expensive French furniture, until their retirement from business some ten years ago. Illustration, Cabinet of Ebony, in the Renaissance style, with Carleons inserted, Litchfield and Radcliffe, 1862 Exhibition, Web, of Old Bond Street, succeeded by anude and subsequently by Radley, Was a manufacturer of this class of furniture, he employed a considerable number of workmen, and carried on a very successful business. The name of Blake, too, is one that will be remembered by some of our older readers who were interested in marquetry furniture of 40 years ago. He made an inlaid center table for the late Duke of Northumberland, from a design by Mr. C.P. Slokornby, of South Kensington Museum, he also made excellent copies of Lewis X.I.V. Furniture the next international exhibition held in London was in the year 1862, and, though its success was somewhat impaired by the great calamity this country sustained in the death of the Prince Consort on 14th December, 1861, and also by the breaking out of the Civil War in the United States of America, the exhibitors had increased from 17.000 in 51 to some 29.000 in 62. The foreign entries being 16.456. As against 6.566, exhibitions of a national and international character had also been held in many of the continental capitals. There was in 1855 a successful one in Paris, which was followed by one still greater in 1867. And, as everyone knows, they have been lately of almost annual occurrence in various countries affording the enterprising manufacturer better and more frequent opportunities of placing his productions before the public, and of teaching both producer and consumer to appreciate and profit by every improvement in taste, and by the greater demand for artistic objects. The few illustrations from these more recent exhibitions of 1862 and 1867 deserve a passing notice. The cabinet of carved ebony with enrichments of carnelian and other richly colored minerals illustrated on previous page, received a good deal of notice, and was purchased by William, Third Earl of Craven, a well-known virtuoso of thirty years ago. The work of Ferdinand, of Paris, has already been alluded to, and in the 1867 exhibition his furniture acquired a still higher reputation for good taste and attention to detail. The full-page illustration of a cabinet of ebony, with carvings of boxwood, is a remarkably rich piece of work of its kind, the effect is produced by carving the boxwood figures and ornamental scroll work in separate pieces, and then inserting these bodily into the ebony, by this means the more intricate work is able to be more carefully executed and the close grain and rich tint of turkey boxwood perhaps next to ivory the best medium for rendering fine carving tells out in relief against the ebony of which the body of the cabinet is constructed. This excellent example of modern cabinet work by Ferdinoise, was purchased for the South Kensington Museum for L1.200, and no one who has a knowledge of the cost of executing minute carved work in boxwood and ebony will consider the price a very high one. The house of Ferdinoise no longer exists. The names of the foremost makers of French meubles de luxe, in Paris, are Berdelli, Dasson, Roux, Sarmani, Durand, and Sweener. Some mention has already been made of Sweener, as the maker of a famous bureau in the Hertford collection, and a sideboard exhibited by Durand in the 51 exhibition is amongst the illustrations selected as representative of cabinet work at that time. Illustration, cabinet of ebony with carvings of boxwood. Designed and manufactured by Anne Ford Noyes. Paris. 1867 Exhibition. Paris. Purchased by S. Kensington Museum for L1.200. Illustration. Cabinet in satinwood With wedgewood plagues and inlay of various woods in the Adam style. Designed and manufactured by Messrs. Wright and Mansfield. London. 1867 Exhibition. Paris. Purchased by the S. Kensington Museum. Illustration. Ebony and ivory cabinet in the style of Italian Renaissance by Andrea Picci, Florence, exhibited Paris, 1867. Note, a marked similarity in this design to that of a 17th century cabinet, illustrated in the Italian section of chapter Iii, will be observed. The illustration of Wright and Manfield's satinwood cabinet, with wedgewood plagues inserted, and with wreaths and swags of marketeric inlaid, is in the Adams style, a class of design of which this fur made a specialite. Both Wright and Mansfield had been assistants at Jackson and Graham's, and after a short term in Great Portland Street, they removed to Bond Street, and carried on a successful business of a high class and somewhat exclusive character, until their retirement from business a few years since. This cabinet was exhibited in Paris in 1867, and was purchased by our South Kensington authorities. Perhaps it is not generally known that a grant is made to the department for the purchase of suitable specimens of furniture and woodwork for the museum. This expenditure is made with great care and discrimination. It may be observed here that the South Kensington Museum, which was founded in 1851, was at this time playing an important part in the art education of the country. The literature of the day also contributed many useful works of instruction and reference for the designer of furniture and woodwork. One noticeable feature of modern design in furniture is the revival of marquetry. Like all mosaic work, to which branch of industrial art it properly belongs, this kind of decoration should be quite subordinate to the general design, but with the rage for novelty which seized public attention some forty years ago, it developed into the production of all kinds of fantastic patterns in different veneers. A kind of minute mosaic work in wood, which was called Tunbridge Wells' work, Became fashionable for small articles. Within the last 10 or 15 years, the reproductions of what is termed Chippendale, and also Adam and Sheridan designs in marquetry furniture, have been manufactured to an enormous extent, partly on account of the difficulty in obtaining the richly marked and figured old mahogany and satin wood of a hundred years ago, which needed little or no inlay as ornament, and partly to meet the public fancy by covering up bad construction with veneers of marquetry decoration. A great deal more light has been given to these reproductions than ever appeared in the original work of the 18th century cabinet makers. Simplicity was sacrificed, and veneers, thus used and abused, came to be a term of contempt, implying sham or superficial ornament. Dickens, in one of his novels, has introduced the veneer family, thus stamping the term more strongly on the popular imagination. The method now practiced in using marquetry to decorate furniture is very similar to the one explained in the description of fuel furniture given in chapter VI, except that, instead of shell, the marquetry cutter uses the veneer, which he intends to be the groundwork of his design, and as in some cases these veneers are cut to the thickness of 1 of an inch, several layers can be sawn through at once, sometimes, instead of using so many different kinds of wood. When a very polychromatic effect is required, Hollywood and sycamore are stained different colors, and the marquetry thus prepared, is glued onto the body of the furniture, and subsequently prepared, engraved, and polished. This kind of work is done to a great extent in England, but still more extensively and elaborately in France and Italy, where ivory and brass, marble, and other materials are also used to enrich the effect. This effect is either satisfactory or the reverse according as the work is well or ill considered and executed. It must be obvious, too, that in the production of marquetry the processes are attainable by machinery, which saves labor and cheapens productions of the commoner kinds, this tends to produce a decorative effect which is often inappropriate and superabundant. Perhaps it is allowable to add here that marquetry, or marquetry, its French equivalent, is the more modern survival of tarsia, work to which allusion has been made in previous chapters. Webster defines the word as, work inlaid with pieces of wood, shells, ivory, and the like, derived from the French word marqueter to checker and mark a sign of German origin. It is distinguished from parquetry which is derived from, pair, an enclosure, of which it is a diminutive, and signifies a kind of joinery in geometrical patterns, generally used for flooring. When However, the marquetry assumes geometrical patterns frequently a number of cubes shaded in perspective the design is often termed in art catalogs a parquetry design. In considering the design and manufacture of furniture of the present day, as compared with that of, say, a hundred years ago, there are two or three main factors to be taken into account. Of these the most important is the enormously increased demand, by the multiplication of purchasers for some classes of furniture, which formerly had but a limited sale. This enables machinery to be used to advantage in economizing labor, and therefore one finds in the so-called Queen Anne and Jacobean cabinet work of the well-furnished house of the present time, rather too prominent evidence of the lathe in the steam plane. Moldings are machined by the length, then cut into cornices, mitered round panels, or affixed to the edge of a plain slab of wood, giving it the effect of carving. The everlasting spindle, turned rapidly by the lathe, is introduced with wearisome redundance. To ornament the stretcher and the edge of a shelf, the busy fret or bandsaw produces fanciful patterns which form a cheap enrichment when applied to a drawer front, a panel, or a frieze, and carving machines can copy any design which a century ago were the careful and painstaking result of a practiced craftsman's skill. Again, as the manufacture of furniture is now chiefly carried on in large factories, both in England and on the continent. The subdivision of labor causes the article to pass through different hands in successive stages, and the wholesale manufacture of furniture by steam has taken the place of the personal supervision by the master's eye of the task of a few men who were in the old days the occupants of his workshop. As a writer on the subject has well said, the chisel and the knife are no longer in such cases controlled by the sensitive touch of the human hand. In connection with this we are reminded of Ruskin's precept that the first condition of the work of art is that it should be conceived and carried out by one person, instead of the carved ornament being the outcome of the artist's educated taste, which places on the article a stamp of individuality instead of the furniture being, as it was in the 17th century in England, and some hundred years earlier in Italy and in France. The craftsman's pride it is now the result of the rapid multiplication of some pattern which has caught the popular fancy, generally a design in which there is a good deal of decorative effect for a comparatively small price. The difficulty of altering this unsatisfactory state of things is evident. On the one side, the manufacturers or the large furnishing firms have a strong case in their contention that the public will go to the market it considers the best, and when decoration is pitted against simplicity. Though the construction which accompanies the former be ever so faulty, the more pretentious article will be selected. When a successful pattern has been produced, and arrangements and subcontracts have been made for its repetition in large quantities, any considerable variation made in the details even if it be the suppression of ornament will cause an addition to the cost which those only who understand something of a manufacturer's business can appreciate. During the present generation an art movement has sprung up called aestheticism. Which has been defined as the science of the beautiful and the philosophy of the fine arts, and aims at carrying a love of the beautiful into all the relations of life. The fantastical developments which accompanied the movement brought its devotees into much ridicule about ten years ago, and the pages of Punch of that time will be found to happily travesty its more amusing and extravagant aspects. The great success of Gilbert and Sullivan's operetta, Patience, produced in 1881, was also to some extent due to the humorous allusions to the extravagances of the Aesthetes, in support of what may be termed a higher aestheticism. Mr. Ruskin has written much to give expression to his ideas and principles for rendering our surroundings more beautiful. Sir Frederick Leighton and Mr. Tadema are conspicuous amongst those who have in their houses carried such principles into effect, and amongst other artists who have been and are, more or less, associated with this movement. May be named Rossetti, Perron Jones, and Holman Hunt. As a writer on aestheticism has observed, when the extravagances attending the movement have been purged away, there may be still left an educating influence, which will impress the lofty and indying principles of art upon the minds of the people. For a time, in spite of ridicule, this so called aestheticism was the vogue, and considerably affected the design and decoration of furniture of the time. Woodwork was painted olive green. The panels of cabinets, painted in sombre colors, had pictures of sad-looking maidens, and there was an attempt at a, in religious, effect in our rooms quite inappropriate to such a climate as that of England. The reaction, however, from the garish and ill-considered colourings of a previous decade or two has left behind it much good, and with the Catholicity of taste which marks the furnishing of the present day, people see some merit in every style and are endeavouring to select that which is desirable without running to the extreme of eccentricity. Perhaps the advantage thus gained is counterbalanced by the loss of our old traditions, for amongst the wilderness of reproductions of French furniture, more or less frivolous of Chippendale, as that mastery is generally understood of what is termed, Jacobean, and, Queen and to say nothing of a quantity of so-called, antique furniture we are bewildered in attempting to identify this latter end of the nineteenth century with any particular style of furniture. By tradition, it is intended to allude to the old-fashioned manner of handing down from father to son, or master to apprentice, for successive generations, the skill to produce any particular class of object of art or manufacture. Shirley Ruskin had something of this in his mind when he said, now, when the powers of fancy Stimulated by this triumphant precision of manual dexterity, descend from generation to generation, you have at last what is not so much a trained artist, as a new species of animal, with whose instinctive gifts you have no chance of contending. Tradition may be said to still survive in the country Cartwright, who produces the farmer's wagon in accordance with custom and tradition, modifying the method of construction somewhat perhaps to meet altered conditions of circumstances and then ornamenting his work by no particular set design or rule, but partly from inherited aptitude and partly from playfulness or fancy, in the house carpenter attached to some of our old English family estates, there will also be found, here and there, surviving representatives of the traditional, joiner, of the 17th century, and in eastern countries, particularly in Japan, We find the dexterous joiner or carver of today is the descendant of a long line of more or less excellent mechanics. It must be obvious, too, that, trades unionism, of the present day cannot but be, in many of its effects, prejudicial to the industrial arts, a movement which aims at reducing men of different intelligence and ability, to a common standard, and which controls the amount of work done, and the price paid for it, whatever are its social or economical advantages, must have a deleterious influence upon the art products of our time. Writers on art and manufacturers, of varying eminence and opinion, are unanimous in pointing out the serious drawbacks to progress which will exist, so long as there is a demand for cheap and meretricious imitations of old furniture, as opposed to more simply made articles, designed in accordance with the purposes for which they are intended. Within the past few years a great many well-directed endeavors have been made in England to improve design in furniture, and to revive something of the feeling of pride and ambition in his craft, which, in the old days of the trade guilds, animated our Jacobean joiner. One of the best directed of these enterprises is that of the Arts and Crafts Exhibition Society, of which Mr. Walter Crane, A.R.W.S., is president, and which numbers, amongst its committee and supporters, a great many influential names, as suggested in the design of the cover of their exhibition catalogue, drawn by the President. One chief aim of the society is to link arm-in-arm, design and handicraft. By exhibiting only such articles as bear the names of individuals who one drew the design and two carried it out, each craftsman thus has the credit and responsibility of his own part of the work, instead of the whole appearing as the production of messers, a b or c d who may have known nothing personally of the matter beyond generally directing the affairs of a large manufacturing or furnishing business. In the catalogue published by this society there are several short and useful essays in which furniture is treated, generally and specifically, by capable writers, amongst whom are Mr. Walter C.